When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. Welcome to a special edition of Naked Oceans that celebrates the world's very first census of marine life. Ten years ago, a group of scientists set themselves the inconceivable task of uncovering the diversity, distribution and abundance of life in the oceans. From pole to pole, from between the tides to the darkest depths of the oceans. No mean feat. Well, this month they announced their findings at a special conference in London. We went along to hear about all the amazing census discoveries and meet many of the people behind it all. We'll hear about the discovery of thousands of new species, revelations about how animals move about and use the oceans, and what the census tells us about the future of the oceans. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me to help cheer on the census of marine life is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hi, Sarah. Hello. And the census isn't just about science. We'll be hearing about some of the artistic and musical inspirations that have emerged from this extraordinary survey of the oceans. We also have a special message about the census from the legendary oceans explorer, Sylvia Earle. It's been said several times, and I'll say it again. This is a wonderful beginning. If you have any questions, do get in touch. You can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. This is Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Costa-Perry. This month we're diving into the world's first ocean census. It's often said that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the oceans, but now an enormous 10-year project, the Census of Marine Life, has helped to change that. It involved over 2,700 people from over 600 institutions around the world who between them spent 9,000 days at sea. To announce the findings of the census and celebrate a decade of discoveries, a special conference was held at the Royal Institution in London. The day began with various key figures from the census giving their thoughts about the census and its many discoveries. Well, I I would say that the really big finding is that the age of discovery for ocean life is right now. And everywhere we've looked, from the shoreline all the way to the abyss, uh, we find a plethora of life. And in the areas that we know relatively well, we have to look a little harder, but we still find new species, new migration routes, new relationships. But then in the environments that we don't know very well, almost every new sample we bring up contains new species that scientists have never seen before. So there's a tremendous opportunity for discovery. There have been some 1,200 new species described over the 10 years of the census, and we believe we have at least another 5,000 sitting in jars awaiting description. And the really exciting thing is that for every species we know about, we now believe that there are probably at least three or four that we don't know about. And so the 250,000 known species in the ocean probably is just a quarter of what is really out there and possibly more. And that doesn't even include the microbes, which are extremely diverse. I would also point out that the oceans are changing very rapidly. There's a lot of bad news stories about the oceans. There's no doubt about it. But I think there's also cause for great hope because there is such a plethora of life and so much to discover. In my view, the 
most stunning outcome of the census was to transform, fundamentally transform our view of the ocean as a place that's much more species-rich, much more globally connected, and much more heavily impacted than we, had a, than we had thought. And, you know, I just thought when I sat here and looked at all of you, I thought that's us as a community as well. We're much more rich, species-rich, much more globally connected today, and we have a much greater impact than we ever had thought on how people perceive the ocean. One of the most important things about this first census of, of marine life is that we've demonstrated it could be done. By doing it, we've created a benchmark, a benchmark that will serve science and society for many years to come. The census was an unprecedented uh, example of global cooperation. And when we started in 2000, many people were quite sceptical about whether the, we could achieve this, but we overcame that scepticism to complete the first census. That was Paul Snellgrove from the University of Newfoundland, Boris Worm from the University of Dalhousie, and Ian Poyner from the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences, all speaking at the opening of the Census of Marine Life Conference about some of the highlights of the census. Chairing the conference was Enric Sala, an Ocean Fellow at National Geographic. We caught up with him at the party afterwards to get his thoughts on the day. This project has completely transformed our vision of the ocean. So right now we know that we, there are far more species than we thought, that the ocean life is more connected than we thought, but also that it's more impacted by human activities than we thought 10 years ago. Can you pick out a few highlights of things that you just thought, that's, that's awesome? Yes, there is much more life in the ocean than we expected. And during the last 10 years, we have been able to find about 6,000 new species during the census. But now we know, based on all the studies and all the technologies used during the census, that before we had about 250,000 species known in the ocean, now we estimate that there are at least a million species in the ocean of larger things. If we think about microbes, we may be talking about a billion different species in the ocean. This is something that we couldn't have imagined before the census. To me, that's one of the main highlights. Why is it important to know how many species there are? Maybe they will have all gone by the time we actually find them and name them. There are so many species in the planet. And we might not know how many species are there, you know, with precision. And probably we will never know what all these species do in the ecosystem. However, they all have a role, right? And we are living in an interconnected planet. So imagine that you were to board a plane and the flight attendant told you that there were 10, 10 screws were missing from the plane. And you didn't know what the screws were for. You didn't know their function. You know, would you board that plane? You know, we, we are removing a species. Species are going extinct, and we don't know what they do. And we might be compromising the ability of the ocean to give us all these services that are essential for us, like oxygen, regulation of the climate, uh, coastal protection, food, medicine, you know, all these things that we take for granted. And by impacting the ocean, as we have been for hundreds of years, we are reducing the ability of the ocean to give us all these things that make our planet such a wonderful place to live. How about um, your involvement in the, in the census and, and your own research and, and areas that you've been looking at? What kind of things have you been doing towards this grand project? I was associated with the History of Marine Animal Populations Program, which explored the human impacts in the past using historical and archaeological data. 
but also I've been conducting a series of expeditions to the last pristine places in the ocean, the last virgin places. These places are like time machines that show us what the ocean was like before we started degrading it. So these places are the last baselines left. Where are they? There are a few places left in the polar seas, in the Arctic and the Antarctic, and in remote uninhabited archipelagos in the middle of the ocean, especially in the Pacific. That sounds like a wonderful place to visit. That must have been a very life-changing, eye-opening experience to be able to go to those very remote places and see what life might have been like everywhere, I guess, in the past. No, absolutely. The, going to these pristine places has been the best thing I've ever done in my career. And you know, imagine that you are an alien and you come to Earth to study how cars work. And the first, thing, the first time you land, you land in a junkyard and you study one of these wrecks, a car wreck. It's all rusty. The engine doesn't work. The wheels are gone. But the battery still has some juice. So you push that button and the windscreen wipers move. So you may well conclude that the car is something that allows you to sit comfortably inside. And even when it rains, you know, you can see the landscape because these things clear the windscreen. If you really want to know what the car does, you should go to a dealership and study a brand new car. Most of the ocean that has been studied in the last 50 years with scuba diving are like junkyards. We are studying wrecks, ecosystems that have been degraded, where essential parts are missing, where species are gone. These last pristine places are like the dealerships of the ocean, the places where we can read the instruction manual of how these ecosystems work. These places will allow us to understand the true magnitude of our impact in the ocean, but also to have a baseline for conservation, you know, to decide what we want for the future. And how about the future for the census? Do you want to see another census? I think the census is a first uh, global baseline. There will be many more studies building up on this global framework, global community, even if it's not called the Census of Marine Life 2. You know, the legacy of the census is going to last for, for decades. Enric Sala giving us his thoughts on the census of marine life. What a job! Visiting the last remaining spots of super healthy ocean. I could definitely imagine doing that as my day job. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, it's also just really good to know that there are still some of these areas left where there's really very little human impact. And yes, I would like to go there too. That would be wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, coming up, we'll find out about how scientists from the Census of Marine Life have been using cutting-edge genetic tools to help get a handle on the myriad of unidentified species brought up from the deep. And stay tuned to hear some musical inspiration from the oceans. But first, to find out more about how the census got started, we chatted to Jesse Osabel from the Sloan Foundation about a very big idea he had a little over 10 years ago. On July 2nd, 1996, a deep-sea expert uh, named Fred Grassley walked into my office and said, I think something big needs to be done for marine life, for marine biodiversity. And... He said, obviously, that's because overfishing and pollution and problems, but also because so much remains to be discovered. He had published an estimate that there might be between 1 and 10 million forms of marine life. And so I said, well, Fred, give me a list of what's actually known today. And he was embarrassed. He said, I can't give you a list. We don't have one. And I said, but people have been doing marine biology since Aristotle for 2,500 years. How can you not have a list? There must be a textbook with a list of all the forms of marine life. And he said, 
well, you know, the sponge people have their lists, but they don't always agree with the corals people, and they don't talk to the anchovy people, and the anchovy people don't like the tuna people, and the tuna people don't like the shark people because sharks sometimes attack tuna. So, so he said, you know, there, there's a lot of information, but it, it's just not organized, and most of the ocean is unexplored. So, so we talked for about an hour and a half, and at the end of the hour and a half, we had the idea to have a big observational program in which we'd have hundreds of expeditions and really try to get better real information observations. And Fred also had the basic idea, he said, but we have to have a common database. So the anchovy people and the sea star people and the herring people can't all just go off in different directions. So we really want to know everything. So we both thought the idea was wonderful and we went off in separate directions and started talking to our colleagues about it. And most people said the idea is wonderful, and most people said the idea is crazy. Some of them said it's romantic. Some of them said it's impossible. But no one said don't try to do it. You know, it, it made people somehow smile or laugh that we wanted to count all the fish in the sea. So we had three whole years of feasibility studies during 1997, 98, 99. So we did do our homework. We had lots of consultations. We wanted to make sure that the technology was powerful enough. We wanted to make sure that people would cooperate. We wanted to make sure that if we finished, as we've now done, that it would, people would feel it was worthwhile. So we had three years of feasibility studies, at the end of which more people felt it was a great idea, and some people still thought it was crazy. But fortunately the people with the checkbook at the Sloan Foundation said, well, we should take risks. That's why we're here. You know, we're not like a federal government agency. We should take a chance on something. And uh, the president and the trustees of Sloan said, we will support this program for 10 years as long as it meets certain milestones. And that's very important because if you, uh, if you talk to lots of naked scientists, you know that it's hard to get clothing for more than one year, two years at a time. Uh, it's very hard to get long-term commitments. So the fact that one organization, even though it couldn't provide all the money, in the end it provided 12% you know, of the money, but it said, we, you know, we will be steady, you know, we'll provide basic support every year so you all can talk to each other, coordinate, make your plans, and if you do well each year, you know, we're just going to keep, keep supporting you until you finish in 2010. And so in 2000, we started organizing, and Fred's view was we should get in the water quickly. We'd already had some years of feasibility studies, but he said, you know, many programs, you write a plan, and then you write a plan, you write a plan to write a plan to write a plan, and people spend 10 years planning and never get in the water or launch the rocket. And so Fred said, let's start doing things right away, showing the kinds of work that we think should be done, and then try to attract people to the project by example, rather than by just inviting people to write documents. And so we started right away in, uh, in, uh, immediately in 2000, 2001 with some expeditions in which we tried to, again, show that we were, we were interested not only in the squid, but lots, you know, but we were interested in what lived on the bottom and we were interested in seabirds and all of the different forms of marine life. And people became enthusiastic. In the end, almost everyone participated, even though, you know, we never... We never went out and dragged people in, but people, it was a kind of voluntary Noah's Ark. So the Abyssal Plains people and the Seamounts people and the Reefs people, they just kind of started to come to us and say, well, we want to be part of this. 
and uh, it grew. And by 2004, 2005, we basically had all the different habitats and the different species represented. And uh, I can see by the grin on your face that it's a clearly a wonderful experience for you to be here, stood here, 10 years down the line, with your crazy, romantic, impossible project finished. It's been the best experience of my professional career, maybe the best experience of my life. I feel a little bit like an Olympic diver who chose a very hard dive, and then, you know, you do the triple somersault and it worked. So I have a little bit of that feeling today. So I'm, I'm very proud. And what we've, of course, I'm proud because what we've done is important also because, you know, it's not easy being a fish these days, and uh, we should be a lot more sensitive about uh, how we treat life in the oceans. Well, I certainly think it's really inspiring to hear how Jesse and Fred Grassley turned their eccentric idea into reality. It just goes to show that no ideas are too big, even when it comes to counting all the fish and everything else in the sea. Making waves about the underwater world, this is Naked Oceans. This is Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry. This month we're diving into the census of marine life, an extraordinary 10-year project with the colossal aim of documenting life in the oceans. With so many researchers venturing out into the oceans to collect marine creatures, the census quickly piled up thousands of specimens to identify. One of the techniques for cataloguing marine life that was pioneered by the census is DNA barcoding. This allows you to take a sample from an ecosystem and identify all the animals present, although not necessarily giving each one an individual species name. I spoke to Anne Bucklin from the University of Connecticut about the debate over whether this is just going to create a nameless catalogue. We, we would love to name everything in the ocean, and we have a team of taxonomists in every project who are expert taxonomists whose whole job is to name species. And we found, what, hundreds of new species. We're in the process of naming them. We think it's the right thing to do. The problem is that naming species with formal taxonomic descriptions is a very slow process. And so many of us feel that, unfortunately, we just don't have that time. And so the next best thing that we can offer is some kind of objective, reliable, valid indicator of what a species is. And so what the census has done is to say that we have a reliable marker of species that we call a DNA barcode. Now that's a short sequence, and we know that it doesn't contain all of the information that morphologists would like us to have, but we know also that it's a very good indicator of what a species is and is not. And so the, the goal of the census barcoders is to provide a set of data which can be translated eventually, when we get to it, into species. The wonders of barcodes, there, there are some dynamics of DNA sequences that are quite remarkable and extremely helpful in this uh, endeavor. One of them is that in all cases, barcode the DNA sequence variation is less within a species than it is between a species. That's called the barcode gap. Barcodes are good to identify species. Another one is that barcodes do a very good job of clustering major groups of animals. So you may not know what species it is, but you know what group it belongs to. And so with barcodes, you can get a kind of an index of biodiversity. It isn't the same as naming species but it actually is going to help us conserve them. And how do you go about 
barcoding? Is it kind of like you take up a scoop of sediment and you can work out, right, there's this many types of nematode worm, there's this many types of mollusk in this sample? The way the census has started barcoding is what we call gold standard barcoding. And so we work from an identified specimen. The taxonomist says this is the species, and that taxonomist gives the specimen to the barcoders, and we determine a sequence. And so now we have a gold standard. We have a DNA sequence with a name on it. So overall, 35,000 species of marine organisms, marine animals, have been barcoded. Now what we're starting to do is to take that scoop of animals, whether it's a net sample of plankton, a scoop of sediment, any kind of habitat that you could name, and we're doing deep sequencing with the new high-throughput sequencing. And what we do then is, is a very complicated analytical task, which is done for us by bioinformatics, to tell us how many species we think are in that sample. Some of those will match our library of gold standard barcodes. Some will not, but some will be close enough so that we can classify. So we say, we don't know what copepod that is, but we know it's a copepod. And so that's the power of what we call environmental barcoding. So how important do you think that the DNA barcoding has been within the census? How important a role has it played within it? The census has embraced barcoding across all of the 14 field projects. um, there's a partner program to the census that's called the Consortium for Barcode of Life. And the Consortium for Barcode of Life has a campaign in marine species that started in 2004. And we've worked very closely together. Some of the census projects have partnered with the Consortium for Barcode of Life. Some of them have done it themselves. But um, very early on in the census, all of the projects were asked to designate a person, a laboratory, um, to, to learn the, the standardized techniques of the Consortium for Barcode of Life, all of the data quality requirements. And so what we have now, of course, is a situation where the, the, the sum is greater, much greater than its parts, because we actually have uh, data from all of the census projects that are entirely comparable, carried out with the same protocols, the same approach, the same gene, and so we, we are looking at a library of barcodes now that is going to be a baseline for us to both continue the gold standard barcoding effort and, and also use environmental barcoding to do this kind of index. We call it a, a genomic signature, a, a genomic fingerprint, so that each ocean realm can have a different genomic fingerprint characterized by barcode diversity. It's not the same as knowing species diversity, but it's close. So barcoding allows an estimate of total species in an area to be made much quicker than if you went through morphologically classifying each specimen one by one, which I suppose in a survey of this size, it's kind of, you know, you need to save some time somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the guys was there um, from the British Antarctic Survey, and he said something like, if if we were really going to sit down and identify, I think we were down to just copepods at that point, all the ones that they'd found um, specimens, it with the people who are specialists in that area at the moment, it would take something like 200 years to identify them all. So, yes, we really do need some help when it comes to figuring out all those species living in the oceans. Well, as well as observing and collecting specimens from across the globe, tracking animals as they move around the oceans has also played a major part in the census, as Pat Halpin from Duke University explains. Tracking is incredibly important because we're trying to find where the animals actually use the habitat. 
So if you just went to someone's house, but you didn't ask them where they went during the day, you would just know their, their address. And what we're trying to find out is where do the animals actually go? And some of the animals in the oceans traverse the entire ocean. Um, we had a whale that we tagged in Antarctica in 2009, and it showed up in American Samoa. And so you start to find out where the animals actually move in the oceans and what part of the oceans do they use. So finding out just where, you know, one point, when you, you locate an animal in the ocean one time, you may get just, you know, 1% of their, of their actual habitat. So I guess that's kind of, it's just a snapshot of their entire life and, and how they live. And I suppose it gives you a clue as to the ecology and their interactions with other species and other organisms and other habitats. Correct. I mean, you, you get a snapshot. It might be just one moment in their life. It might be just representing one week in their life. And we really need to explain, you know, what, why do they move different places? What are the most important places? I, I do a lot of work trying to translate the science into policy, and we need to know, you know, what, what is the management regime we need to have to actually manage these animals? And having a snapshot just doesn't do that. And so how can the tracking help to inform the conservation of these animals? And when we're tracking animals, we find out not just where they are, but what they're doing. So we find out, are they feeding in one place? Are they migrating to another place to spawn? And so we know why it's important. And so we might find out that the spawning areas are incredibly important to protect. And other places that are migratory corridor, we might have a different perspective on how to manage those places. So I guess it's a little bit like having um, the corridors between various areas of biodiversity, like in a rainforest. So you have two areas that are protected, but you need a corridor between them that's also protected in order for them, the species to migrate between them. Otherwise, you're going to end up with isolated populations and endanger those species. Exactly. What we need to be able to do is define why they're using different habitats and then explain the corridors and connections between them. We actually use a lot of network analysis to be able to understand what's the connections. Exactly the same kind of analysis people use for social networks, for transportation networks, to try to find out why, what are the important connections. So it's the exact same thing with, with marine species. So using both satellite and acoustic tracking showed that ocean ecosystems are much more interconnected than we previously thought. I mean, it was interesting what Pat was saying about how if you just look at species in one place you don't necessarily get a complete view of their ecology and how they behave and where they go and everything. So tracking has, yeah, it's been a really important part of the survey. Well, of course, the census isn't just interesting from a zoological and ecological perspective. It could also be an important tool to raise awareness of the plight of the oceans and inform policymakers. Here's Christina Jurdy. Bringing the high seas, the oceans, into the living room of the public will help to stir some concern about what is the state of the ocean these days. And if that concern can be translated to our policymakers, that's in their capitals, in our um, hometowns, then we would start to see some action. We need more protected areas. We need tighter restrictions on fishing. We need new levels of accountability, responsibility. As we say, we have more power to go out and do new things in the marine environment. We also need sort of that accompanying parental restraint that tells us we don't do everything that we can do, but we do need, as they were saying, saying the car with the seatbelts before we go out to sea. That was Christina Jurdy, a maritime lawyer turned conservation advisor at the IUCN. That's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature.
So there you go, all you lawyers out there, there is room for you to also embrace the oceans. Well, we did track down one lawyer uh, amongst all the scientists at the Census of Marine Life, but the project also brought together artists and musicians who share a love of the oceans. Here's Census co-founder Jesse Ossipel again. Uh, This is another funny thing that happened. About three years ago, we were having a meeting in California, two years years ago, I guess, uh, in the Monterey Bay area, and an acoustician who'd been a research assistant for me, but who now works in Berkeley, California, he'd worked for me in New York, said, oh, I have some friends who are musicians, but they love marine life. Is it all right if they come down to the meeting in Monterey? So I said, sure, bring them along. Well, they turned out to be musicians from the Grateful Dead music scene. And they loved all the, the fish that they met. <laughs> and uh, so one of them, a woman named Marianne Camilleri, said, can I write a song about this? And I said, well, of course you can write a song about it. So she wrote a wonderful song, which has now been recorded at the Grateful Dead Recording Studios with the lead keyboard part by Jerry Harrison from the band The Talking Heads. You're a bit young, so you may only be into, I don't know, Bell and Sebastian or newer people, but uh, I mean, it would have been fine to get Radiohead or Green Day too, but anyway, I- I'm older, so I thought having Talking Heads and Grateful Dead is just great. So we have this wonderful song, music video, really good song, Look to the Sea, which will be released also for free. You don't even have to pay an America 99 cents for the MP3. And artists donated pennants and made sculptures and paintings, and all this stuff just kind of happened. Uh, And I think it's because marine life is beautiful. I think beauty was the attractor. And yes, we are into Bell and Sebastian, actually. Well, I am. Um, and, but I'm actually quite glad it wasn't Radiohead who did the song, because um, I think that might have been a bit too gloomy. Um, but I have to say, I absolutely agree with Jesse. It is all about the beauty of the oceans. That was Look to the Sea, a song composed and sung by Mary Ann Camilleri, especially for the senses of marine life. Now, you can go and download that song absolutely for free, and there's a wonderful animated video that goes along with it. So check out the links on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Caster-Perry. In a moment, we'll be hearing from ocean explorer supremo Sylvia Earle with her thoughts on the census, and we'll find out which marine expert we tracked down to choose our Critter of the Month. Now, as well as documenting life in the oceans today, the Census of Marine Life also looked into the past. We chatted with Paul Holm from Trinity College Dublin to find out more about how researchers have been winding back the clock to work out what the oceans used to be like and how this can help us look to the future. Ten years ago, my colleagues said to me, writing the history of the oceans, you can't do that because there's no sources. Historians don't do fish. What we now know is that actually we've got plenty of evidence for how much uh, we've taken out of the oceans, what kind of footprint that has left. We also know a bit about how that impacted the development of human society. So it's learning more about our relationships with the oceans, and uh, I think that's exciting because uh, very little work has been done in that field. And you're looking into the past. How do you do that, and how far into the past are we now able to look when it comes to the oceans and and fisheries and so on? Well, you need to look into all sorts of sources. It can be 
Well, obviously, written records. As a historian, I would go to port books. I would go to skipper's log books. I would go to uh, monastic records. You can go to archaeological evidence. You can look at the trash heaps, as the Americans would say, or the kitchen middens. Uh, look at old fish bones. You can look at sediment layers in the ocean bed. And some of the, the most imaginative uses of, of records was uh, the use of restaurant menus. The New York uh, City Library had one possibly slightly insane collector uh, who had been collected restaurant menus and had built up this fantastic series of a hundred years of restaurant menus, which provides a fantastic record of what people used to eat uh, and how, how we've been eating down the food web. A hundred years ago, abalone uh, would be on the menu, uh, whereas today that would be an endangered species. One of the, the exciting things about this is that actually when you use that kind of evidence, uh, you also use evidence that people will be able to relate to very easily. When I talk to uh, fishing communities, very often they will flatly deny that they had any footprint in the oceans. They will say, well, the fishes are doing all right. But if I tell them, actually, if I look into your grandparents' logbooks, they were catching fish which would be three times as long as the cod that you're landing today, that seems to be an indication of some change, and they will actually have to say, yeah, that's pretty bad news. So it sounds like during the census, you unleashed this new wave of ways of looking into the past. You say people thought, well, how could you do that? And now all these different creative and imaginative um, approaches. And that's really quite new, isn't it? That, that you've now kind of unleashed this whole new, almost a whole new field of, of research, really. Yeah. And the exciting thing is that because so few people have been looking at this in, in the past, there's lots to discover. I think one of the, the, the most amazing things uh, is the discovery by James Barrett and his group in Cambridge of the so-called fish horizon. We now know that around 1050, 1100, fishermen all around the North Sea in England, Scotland, Holland, Belgium, Denmark were going much further out into the open sea and catching fish at depths of two, three hundred meters, bringing back gadoids of all sorts, so cod, ling, that sort of uh, species, uh, and marketing uh, the fish fairly deep inland that's new. It really reveals that there was a tremendous change in the diet of ordinary people. It explains a lot about the impact that we humans have had on the open ocean because everywhere we look, the first thing you do is take out the big fish, the, the big marine mammals or the big fish. And of course, when we look at the, at the cod bone of way back then, these were humongous uh, creatures that they were landing uh, because obviously nobody had been catching them before so they lived to be the full natural age of up to 20 years they could grow well in excess of one and a half meters presumably we use this looking into the past to think about the present and even the future how does your research help us think about things like conservation and, and what we really need to be doing to the oceans now. It's all very well to say in the 12th century we changed our diets. Yeah. How does that now help us look into the future? It's kind of sad to know that we took out all of that, but actually it's also something that we can turn to really uh, inform us for future ocean policy, because if it used to be out there, it could actually be rebuilt. 
because the oceans are very resilient. Although we have wiped out many of the commercial fish stocks, it's not that the fish have gone in, in a biological sense. They're still out there. They're waiting for their chance. The oceans are deep, and there are many places to hide. So there is a huge potential uh, for us uh, to rebuild fish stocks in the future. Remember, all the fisheries biology, science, really rests on knowledge that's been accumulated in the last 50 uh, years, whereas what we're looking at is how did the oceans look 100, 200, 300 years ago. They were very different. They could be rebuilt to that stage if we want to. Of course, that's a political question. Will we want to do it? But the economic gains would be sizable. It would mean that there would be plenty more fish and it would be fish of a much more valuable nature because, of course, if you have fish that is allowed to grow to longer scales, uh, you actually have much more attractive fisheries and you will also have much more resilient fisheries because it, it makes no sense now that we are killing off cod at the age of less than three years of age. That's just before they spawn for the first time it would make more sense to wait at least till they are 8 or 10 years, uh, have spawned a few times, and actually we know that the eggs of cod that has spawn, spawned a few times is actually much more likely to survive uh, from all the hazards that, uh, that confront uh, a little fish egg. So lots of gains to be made, and we can learn that from history, that the oceans will actually provide that future for us if we want to. It's not doom and gloom, it's actually tremendous potential. That was Paul Holm telling us about how kitchen scraps and skippers logbooks are building a detailed picture of oceans past and how they can help direct us into the future. I think one of the really exciting things that emerged in census is all the new ways of looking at the oceans. I mean, the research has been so imaginative and pushing out those boundaries, showing that we can learn so much by thinking creatively and how we observe and measure life in the oceans and the way that humans have impacted them as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, I have to say, one of my highlights of the day was the chance to meet one of my heroes. Sylvia Earle is undoubtedly a pioneer of ocean exploration. She's clocked an amazing 7,000 hours underwater. I think she holds amazing records for the um, deepest diving woman to go in all these crazy submersible vessels and stuff. And at the age of 75, she's still going strong, still scuba diving, and she's heading up all sorts of campaigns to protect the oceans. So we caught up with Sylvia and asked her what she thought about the census of marine life. It's been said several times, and I'll say it again, this is a wonderful beginning. Ten years is a long time, and it has set the stage for whatever follows. This really has stirred things up and makes it perfectly obvious that the great era, maybe the greatest era of exploration, is truly just beginning. Some think that it's all over and that we have to reach skyward to find new frontiers. And, of course, we can find them there. We need to do that. But mostly, we need to get to know this part of the universe, this part of the solar system, this place that keeps us alive. It's critical in terms of that great dream of humankind, and that is to have peace. We cannot have peace among ourselves if we fail to make peace with nature. And we're not. Right now, we're not. We're cutting forests that have been growing for thousands of years. We're mining the ocean of its wildlife that have been, has been developing for hundreds of millions of years. And I can forgive it only on the basis that people just don't know. 
they, they don't know. And yet we have the power of knowing and the sense of submarine life has gone a long way toward putting things in perspective. That not only have we just begun to get to know this ocean planet and to appreciate that our lives are dependent on the ocean and the creatures. It's not just rocks and water out there. It's a living system that gives us oxygen, that grabs the carbon out of the atmosphere, that drives the food waves, drives not just the carbon cycle and the oxygen cycle, but the water cycle. It's where 99%, 97% of the water on the planet is. And without the ocean, no rain, no water, no life. We absolutely are dependent. We are sea creatures every bit as much as those magnificent numbers of individuals that the Census of Marine Life has been cataloging and celebrating at this occasion. Wonderful stuff. Well, that was veteran ocean explorer Sylvia Earle sharing her thoughts on the census and the future for the oceans. Because obviously the big question that emerges from this amazing ocean census is, well, what will happen in the future? Here's what some of the other speakers at the census conference had to say on that. I think one of the key things we've done in the census is to identify some of the key unknowns. And perhaps equally as importantly, uh, Nancy Knowlton, my colleague, used the analogy of flashlights in a dark house. So we have flashlights now where we've looked around a lot of the house and we know where many things are, but we haven't really turned on the lights yet. Uh, but with these technologies, we really have the capacity to, to move forward on that, on, on that ground. And again, we know what some of the key gaps are, and so we can move forward. But I would say that many of us uh, need to catch our breath, uh, and so we need to digest what we have and then plan how to move forward, because there is still lots of discovery ahead. How will the future look like? It will be different. It will be different from what we have collectively documented and detailed in the first census of marine life. This will be a baseline against which rapid future change will be measured. There's two scenarios that I would like to contrast. One is a world or a place in which the intensity of fishing, the spread of um, habitat destruction, and the uh, velocity of climate change is increasing the rate of biodiversity loss that we're already observing today. Where this will happen, we will see um, a re reduction in biodiversity along with the reduction in the services this biodiversity provides, such as our food supply, water quality, and other economic opportunities in the oceans that we still have to discover. On the other side, where we're investing in a concerted effort into rebuilding and management measures that allow biodiversity to flourish again, for example, in protected areas or through wise fisheries management, we do see biodiversity increase again, and with it, the services it provides. So this is not a scientist's pipe dream. This is actually something we have already documented happening as far back as 100 years ago, but also today at an increasing pace. We're trying to take care of what is left and rebuild what we have lost. I define myself as an angry optimist. Now, if I were an optimistic, I couldn't do what I do. And there are bright spots there that we can replicate. There are marine protected areas that we set aside where marine life comes back and then the fish reproduce and replenish nearby areas, helping fisheries, bringing dollars to the local economy through tourism. Most of the species are still there. Some are in very low numbers, but they are still there, so we still have a chance. 
That was Paul Snellgrove, Boris Worm and Enrique Sala sharing their thoughts on the future of the oceans and the census of marine life. And it's also been announced that later in the year at another marine conference in Scotland, researchers will be looking into the possibilities for a second census of marine life. So we'll be keeping out an eye for that and watch this space to see what happens next. Well, that would be really exciting because I guess all they focused on in this particular census was the animals. So there's always the potential for all the plant life as well. And I mean, there's still so much more to discover. So definitely a second census of marine life would be a good thing. Well, with so much talk of ocean biodiversity, how could we resist tracking down an expert to choose our Critter of the Month? So with champagne glass in hand at the census party, we cornered Carl Gustav Lundin, head of the Global Marine Programme at the IUCN, and put him on the spot, asking him if he was a marine critter, what would he be and why? So my name is Carl Gustav Lundin. I work for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And if I were a marine species, I would be a sea urchin. Um, I think the sea urchins drew my attention when I was a really young boy and I helped my father to collect uh, samples in various oceans around the world. Um, He was doing genetic research and as you might know, sea urchins go through these lateral stages which are quite dramatic. At one point, for example, they looked like Eiffel Towers. So I, I found this fascinating as a boy, and I helped him to grow them in aquarium. And it was one of these things where, you know, I, I always felt akin to the ocean very early on. I guess it was also my first big marine event as a professional was in Monaco. Uh, I was sent there, and uh, with um, Princess Stephanie, we were eating these sea urchin spreads. And I was like, okay, well, I could relate to sea urchins. So, so there you are. Carl Gustav Lunden there, telling us about his devotion to sea urchins from childhood through to eating them with Princess Stephanie of Monaco. Not bad. Check out our website to find out what other critters our marine experts have chosen. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, sadly, after so much census fun, that's all we've got time for this month on Naked Oceans. A huge thank you to everyone at the Census of Marine Life, especially Jesse Osabel, Enrique Sala, Anne Bucklin, Pat Halpin, Paul Holm, Christina Jurdy, Paul Snellgrove, Boris Worm, Ian Poyner, Carl Gustav London, and, of course, Sylvia Earle. Tune in next time for more news, chat, and hot issues from the oceans. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Naked Oceans, or drop us an email. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. You'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. We'll leave you with a few more words on the world's first ocean census from Sylvia Earle. How much of the ocean has so far been seen? 5% or less? See what I mean? With the state of the ocean now in decline, our future too is right on the line. To the past, to the future to all who chimed in. A new census of marine life should now begin. Now's the time, as never before, to explore and explore and explore some more. Thank you. And to the census of marine life. Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.
Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.